Hello and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we discuss new ideas that can shape a sustainable food system from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Robert Agraf, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. These episodes will be available every other week on all major podcast platforms. Before we get started, we'd like to say a quick thank you to the FFA founding partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the FFA strategic partners, Cargill, The Nature Conservancy, Rabobank, Thought for Food, and the World Wildlife Fund. Please enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome back to Food Systems. We're off for the FFA 2021 and today it's my pleasure to interview Karina Millstone. She is the Executive Director of Feedback Global with a long history in NGO work, academia and also a permaculturalist herself. She is also the author of a book, Frugal Value, Designing Business for a Crowded Planet. And Karina was on our panel on climate change and food system resilience at FFA 2021. Karina, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to jump straight into some of your remarks. Um, During the panel, you said that the food system as it currently exists was essentially developed in a world that is no longer the one we live in. I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on, on that idea. Yeah, I think this is really a really critical point. So if we think of our economic system and our food system, um, it was developed at a time where planetary boundaries had not yet been breached. And by this, I mean, um, there was an expectation that uh, the environment was a the background conditions, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the backdrop to human economic activity and to our food system. We assumed uh, those conditions were immutable, they would be eternal. And so this led to a few things. This was a world where we assumed um, we could keep on growing the economy, could keep on using resources uh, indefinitely, pretty much. The idea of resource constraints had not yet been reached. This was a world where we assumed the, 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 the planet would continue to provide us with key services, such as uh, regulation, uh, for example, that the climatic conditions wouldn't change, that pollination would happen regularly every year, uh, and indeed a system that would absorb our pollutions indefinitely as well, so that pollutions would, would be absorbed and regenerated. Essentially, we now know this is not the world we're in anymore. We now know that we are our current food production system, our current economic system more broadly, is fundamentally uh, changing those conditions uh, and threatening them. We now know the climate is no longer stable. We now no longer know that infinite use of resources, growing use of resources is not tenable. We now know we are threatening the natural world to such an extent that we're threatening its ability to to regenerate itself. And so this is really what I, I, I meant, that we needed to consider what it meant that our, our system was designed in this previous era. You know, in this previous era, uh, infinite economic growth was okay. We weren't constrained by growth. We now know that we are constrained uh, by, by economic growth. In that system, externalities don't matter. You know, we can pollute, but that's okay. The, the earth is regenerating ourselves. We, you know, we, we can release greenhouse gases, but that is okay. The, the climate is stable. We now know that's no longer the case. 
So we are now at a, in the world where we cannot continue to grow the economy uh, and we cannot continue to generate these so-called externalities. However, what we've seen in the last decades, I mean, even in, I think it's the 1950s, the Club of Rome publishes the limits to growth. In the 1980s, we get Professor Anderson over at NASA saying very seriously, climate change is where we have to do action now. What is your analysis? Why have we not acted on, on these very serious, very credible warnings I mean, I feel that we thought it was a problem in the future um, is one thing I would say. This was always, you know, even even myself uh, at the beginning of my career would have spoken about climate change as an issue for future generations. And I would have thought about this in a slightly academic way about issues around, you know, intergenerational equity and what it meant. It's now clear that the crisis is here, right? Climate change is here. It's affecting us now. The threat to nature, uh, the loss of biodiversity is here. The mass species extermination that we're living through, you know, the age of extinction is here. So I think partly it's it's the awareness, you know, that, that, that the crisis that, as you say, we've known about, you know, since the 70s uh, has now been, you know, that we, it has arrived. Uh, so we can no longer deny it, deny it. So I think that's the, that's the reality that, you know, we were warned in the 70s and now it's happening uh, today. During the FFA panel, one of the motivators you pointed out as blocking our transition to a much more sustainable food system is the, the profit motive in general, and sort of especially that as it relates to sort of the large multinational corporations that are very deeply intertwined with the, the food system. Can you elaborate on how you believe the, the profit motive is stymieing our transition? Yeah, again, I think for me, this is really the root cause of, of uh, our current predicaments. I think I want to make the big, big distinction here in terms of the profit motive for corporates. Uh, so the corporate profit motive uh, and the profit motive more generally. Uh, I think there's a big difference between uh, the pursuit of profit to make money for external shareholders who are very distant from the work uh, of, a, of an organization, who may are who may be institutional shareholders uh, representing the interests of other of, of financial beneficiaries who themselves might not be aware they have a stake in a company for, you know, via a pension fund or, or an investment index, which is quite different to me to the profit motive that the small business you know might want to stay in business or a farmer you know would want enough money to stay in business so i think so when i talk of the profit motive being the issue really to be clear it's the profit motive for corporate shareholders that's the issue so why is this so problematic well it's so problematic because in that system especially in the instance of publicly traded corporations on, on public markets the only interest these whole these owners have uh, these shareholders have in their firm is is financial reward and what this tends to do is it tends to drive two things is it tends to drive cost externalization as in you know how do we minimize costs what what this means in practice might be global supply chains that are developed because the cost of labor is cheaper elsewhere or in terms of environmental issues it might be externalizing uh, environmental impacts elsewhere because uh, environmental regulations are more lax in sourcing countries for example so we see this time and time again in terms of the kind of deforestation that would you know would not be the loss of nature that would not be acceptable uh, you know, in our home, in, in the UK, for example, where I'm based, but somehow the corporations do it 
overseas, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And the second piece is uh, this kind of disassociation of, of, of workers and management and ownership through shareholders is the kind of the growth imperative that it creates, right? There is a vested interest to keep on growing the firm and growing the profits. Uh, and as I mentioned at the beginning of our talk, you know, inherently the issue we have here is one of of a growing economy on a finite planet, so that's why for me the, the you know the, the the pursuit of corporate profit is really at the heart of of our problems at the moment. I think for a lot of our listeners, it would be easy to say, okay, there's a there's a small farmer on a small patch, and he or she owns their own land and sells their produce, and that's very simple and direct. And a multinational conglomerate with global shareholders is different, but I mean, you also see. One of the largest supermarket chains in the world, Walmart, is still extensively owned by the Walton family. Some of the largest traders in the world still owned also by private entities. Where do you distinguish between the two? It's, it's difficult, obviously. You know, there isn't a clear-cut definition. I would say it's on a spectrum. You know, we know when we see good practices of agroecological, locally owned farming versus, you know, at the end of the spectrum, you know, the 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 kind of the Tysons or the kind of the big shareholder corporations. Absolutely, the private company is in more of a grey area. What I would say for me is that there's, you know, there are other distinctions that come into play. The extent to which a company is embedded in local markets or serves international markets, the extent to which it relies on global finance uh, in the form of shareholders and investments or in the form of credits and loans and so on. So I think that I agree with you, the distinction is not perfectly clear cut but i think we can see you know we can feel there is a difference between uh you know a smaller entity where where the workers themselves you know are invested in their community they're serving their local market they have a financial stake in their firm versus the more uh you know multinational not embedded in in in, in their place of operation but more of a kind of the globalized um globalized financial markets and and, and commodity supply chains let's take your theory and let's see if we can apply to to practice so we want to change the system we want to remove this sort of corporate global anonymized shareholding level construction and we want to create a more localized identifiable good for workers good for the environment where do we start yeah we are absolutely spoiled for choice <laughs> in terms of where to start you're absolutely right in my view, it makes sense to start uh, where the impacts are the greatest and where the kind of the global system is at its most egregious. Uh, and for me, this is meat. So, um, you know, that meat is funda the, the, the environmental and perf uh, the environmental profile of meat is so fundamentally different depending on how it's produced. Uh, on one end of the spectrum, we have the, uh, the American or Brazilian style kind of concentrated animal feed, huge scales requiring vast amounts of imported feed often in the in the in the shape of soy um uh, which obviously is linked to land use pressure and deforestation uh in the cerrado and elsewhere on the one hand and then you have the the meat as part of uh, animals being kept as part of an agroecological system where the, the animals contribute to local nutrient cycling, uh, where perhaps they're fed on leftovers, food waste, for example, inedible human food waste, uh, and that they're, they're part of this more kind of you know, farm level self-sustaining system. So, you know, the, the spectrum on meat is huge. So where do we start? So in my view, the, the worst offenders, the, the industrial meat, uh, as I've described it, 
simply needs to end you know quite quite frankly that there we, we you know there is no place for this type of animal production meat production uh in a sustainable food system uh that's the case because uh you know it's kind of climate intense land use intense and it's not a process that can be made more climate efficient or land use efficient these animals require feed you know this is a inherently a land use uh, an, an environmental inefficiency we're using soy animal crops uh, crops that are by and large already human edible to feed to animals to feed to people is simply not a good way to produce protein for humans um obviously in terms of uh there's enteric fermentation for ruminants as well something obviously that can be improved for dietary change but cannot be removed the process of digestion is you know inherent to producing the animals and then there's the whole issue of manure management at the end of it also creating all sorts of issues so this is fundamentally uh you know an industry that cannot be decarbonized whose land use impacts cannot be minimized uh and hence it needs to end uh so for me the the starting point is how do we end and uh, the industrial meat and dairy industry as swiftly as possible. Uh, and again, if we if we look at it there, you know, it ties into the the corporate structure piece we, we're talking about earlier because. Uh, in its work form, this industrial form, of, um, the, the industry is owned by a handful uh, of corporations. So we need to tackle those corporations. You know, here I think there are some good analogies in terms of the fossil fuel divestment movement and can draw on uh, how activists have tackled other industries that need to end, such as coal, for example. Let's assume that there is, that the will exists and it must also be a political will to be sure uh, that, that we tackle some of these major corporations and we end what you would call, I think, an industrial cycle of, of feed production and animal production. How do we dismantle it? Is, it? is it, does the state come in and simply seize the asset, pay out the shareholder? Well, that's a really, really, really good point. I mean, the, what you're describing in the state stepping in and paying off the shareholders, you know, interestingly, is a bit what happened with slavery, right? Like, like actually, this is a very good question. You know, is, the, is this how we would end it? Or would we nationalize the industry and then phase it out? Uh, and interestingly, you know, that, that there's a strong case for doing this with the fossil fuel industry as well. Uh, you know, that that is this big question. How do you end corporations that need to end, you know, whose business uh, model is inherently incompatible uh, with, um, with, you know, with the stability of, of our climate and life conditions. I mean, in my view, um, you know, there's, it's a, there's a multiple prong approach. Um, I think there's a big role for finance here. Um, you know, a lot of financial institutions have started to adopt net zero portfolios or, you know, trying to integrate climate in their decision making process. Um, and of course, are you know, well aware of, of the need to think about uh, renewable, renewable energy in their portfolios. But then they're not, it's not yet on their radar that uh, agribusiness and especially meat uh, and, and dairy uh, ought to be part of their thinking with regards to climate. So I think we can piggyback on a lot of existing initiatives um, on uh, you know on climate and finance for the finance piece but then of course you know there's other ways of course the states could could intervene um the states could um pr could promote the alternative right so you know there's an element of weakening the current model and promoting the better meat as we were describing and here i really see a, a huge role for the state in terms of public procurement choices, for example, uh, you know, the, the, the state, states could readily commit to halving their meat 
you know, the, the meat intake or, you know, for, for their public procurement, uh, the state could, um, could readily start thinking about subsidies to help promote agroecological farming and why not public banking, uh, you know, to support farmers wanting to uh, develop their farms in a more agroecological manner. Um, we know for, for better access to finance. So, so I do think there are there are other opportunities that are not quite so nuclear as paying shareholders off. Um, although, you know, it, it, it's it's worth thinking about uh, as an option if the priority is to end the industry. This is. I wanted to briefly come back to this this idea of, of using finance, the the financial system. I mean, I think certainly in the last couple of years and with the corona crisis, we've seen that that money can be made available if the state so chooses it. I can't remember the total of money spent on corona-related subsidies and payouts, but it's fast. But it's an interesting that you move to the finance industry because they would need, they themselves would need a profit motive to destroy something or, or wind down an industry that also has its own profit motive. So it's an interesting sort of squaring of the circle. I'm absolutely with you on that. You know, like I think, so for me, I want to definancialize the economy and the food system. So what I'm describing here is an intermediary model. Uh, and I think where the kind of tension might occur is, you know, obviously uh, we work closely with a lot of animal rights activists, for example. Um, and animal rights activists um, are very excited, for example, with uh, plant-based proteins, you know, the kind of the whole food tech uh, piece producing precision fermentation, cellular agriculture, all this, you know, there's, there's a lot of excitement around this, both amongst animal rights activists and, uh, and investors, impact investors and, and investors more generally. And there is a, you know, a school of thought that actually the likes of Tyson and Cargill, all these meat companies are, are aware of the writing on the wall and that they will transition to become, you know, plant-based protein providers. So, this raises an interesting question for me. You know, is that the desirable end goal that I would like to see in the food system? And the answer is absolutely not. I could see it as a desirable, you know, midterm goal or short-term goal. You know, knowing that we need to end industrial meat and dairy production. But what I worry about is that you would we would still have the kind of corporate-controlled food system. It would still raise all sorts of issues uh, around gender and equity. Uh, and do we really want to be eating burgers that have you know six patents in them or not? You know, it would not solve these issues of food sovereignty. So it's true. You know, there's a slight inconsistency in what I'm saying in terms of using the financial system at this stage. I see it as an intermediary step. But I do take your point that it turns out that there is money available. You know, we were we were certainly sold in the UK that there was no magic money tree available for you know public financing. Actually, it turns out that in a time of crisis, there is public financing. There's a lot of it kicking around, right? So I do think here. That, you know, as the crisis becomes clearer and clearer, there is a big role for public finance here. Uh, as I say, maybe an agroecological development bank, you know, to really help, you know, farmers secure finance and investment in, in developing agroecological systems. Uh, so, yes, I, I recognize the tension that, that you're recognizing as well. How do we bring the public along on this journey? Because telling people what to eat and not to eat, if... It, that's sort of where it tends to go. How do how do you bring people along? What what motivates them, and what would put, get them to the ballot box to to vote for such measures? Yeah, absolutely. This is a really good point. So I think my starting observation would be that how lucky that 
diets that are good for the planet are also the diets that are good for our health. Like, how fortunate is that, right? So this is tremendously lucky that we now know that some of the healthier diets are largely plant-based and might be supplemented by some uh, marine resource, marine ingredients, uh, maybe some fish, maybe some algae, uh, maybe a little bit of meat and dairy. But like, it's, it's, you know, how lucky that when we're thinking about reducing meat, it's also a public health intervention. So we need to recognize that reality and, and, and indeed for sugar as well, you know, reducing sugar, it's a public health intervention, but it also helps to, to spe- you know, free up land that is used to grow this, you know, unhealthy crop for other crops that are healthier or for rewilding or for our forestation. So there is this kind of amazing, beautiful confidence, you know, <laughs> of, uh, of, of a diets that are good for people and good for the planet. Lucky us. With regards to kind of moving the kind of the, the citizens, consumers along, um, I think we, we, we don't want to kind of um, I guess underestimate, overestimate how difficult the challenge is. In my view, you know, the fact is, food culture evolves quickly and evolves, um, you know, in unexpected ways. You know, I can think just in my lifetime, you know, sushi was an un- you know an unusual exotic product. It's now kind of quite mainstream. I think the the classic diet in the UK of meat and two veg. This is not really what people are having for dinner all the time anymore. Uh, so, you know, f- food culture evolves. Uh, so it's it's evolving. Uh, and certainly the, 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 what we're seeing at the moment, it's an, it's an evolution in the direction of less meat as people are more and more aware of the health benefits of eating less meat, but also crucially the climate. You know, the climate crisis is now here and people are aware that that's the case. So I think it's not so much, you know, there's not necessarily a, a job to be done for taking people along along with us. I think this is part of the evolution of, of diets that are culturally acceptable and, and nourishing and sustaining for us. I think it's also really important here to recognize that uh, our food choices aren't made in a vacuum. You know, we are... We really are, you know, we're completely structured with what's available on the market uh, and then within our kind of our timeframes and our budgets and so on. Uh, and so recognizing that at the moment, you know, we we often have the the illusion of choice. You know, if you go into a supermarket, there's, you know, vast amounts of choice, but actually the choice is quite limited. Uh, actually, you are, you know, the products are all from industrially produced systems being offered by uh, organizations that have quite similar business models uh, you know a lot of them are these big corporations and actually you know the, the, it's harder to access maybe you know produce from local markets for example uh, so I think we do there is a lot of work to be done on food environments and how thinking about how these kind of supermarket uh, models uh, influence what we buy and, and and you know again as a shorter term measure you know ideally I want to get rid of supermarkets but you know as a shorter term measure there is a lot of work to be done for for putting pressure on supermarkets uh, and influencing supermarkets to take their responsibilities seriously with regards to climate and nutrition, and recognise that the kind of the choice narrative we're offering a choice doesn't work anymore. That they, you know, from a climate perspective, they are responsible for scope three emissions. They are responsible for the emissions of the products that they sell, uh, including meat. Uh, and recognizing that providing healthier options isn't enough if they still have sugar on, you know, on most of their shelves. So I think there is a big, big role here for retailers to, you know, to step up to the responsibility of what they're selling and how they're shaping our food choices. I think this is a very interesting point to me. If you say in the future we should also get 
rid of our supermarkets. I wonder if you could just briefly sketch for, for our listeners, what does then food shopping or, or acquiring food look like in such a health? Paint a picture for like the everyday citizen in, 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 in a redesigned, more sustainable, more localized world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we need to move towards more of a regional food economy basis, uh, where not all, but a lot of the food that we eat is, uh, is produced uh, regionally, perhaps not locally, but regionally. Uh, as I say, not all but a lot of it. Uh, I think we want to see stronger links between farmers uh, and producers and the public. Uh, that can be achieved, uh, you know, just through physical proximity, right? If you're kind of, if you're shopping in a more localized area. But I think there's also a lot of interesting examples of so-called alternative food economies. They're, they're alternative, but they've actually been around for ages, you know, including shopping directly from farmers, including shopping uh, in farmers markets, including consumer cooperatives, uh, and including um, CSA models or community supported agriculture, or indeed community supported fisheries. Really interesting models that we know, uh, for example, on a very practical level, we know that a uh, uh, food pr uh, procured, um, that there's a lot less food waste if food is procured via uh, via a community-supported agriculture model than it is via a supermarket. And why is that? Well, simply, uh, there are fewer instances in the supply chain when food waste can happen. You know, compare uh, food coming from your local farmer to food coming from, you know, very far away somewhere, you know, out of sight, out of mind, uh, and the distribution and, and, and all this that needs to happen. Crucially, the farmer has already agreed the price in advance and the share of their harvest. So all the harvest will be will be collected. Uh, so there won't be this kind of food waste on farms that we know occurs systematically, you know, systemic amount of waste on farms uh, when linked into these these corporate global supply chains. And then we also know that on the on the on the customer side that food will be more valued. People know it's been grown, they've shown to the farmer, they're part of a of a of kind of a co-created process. So I think there's all these kind of little examples, you know, really all over the place now of alternative ways to get food outside of the supermarket system. The question for me is how do we replicate these uh, and support uh, more of them? I had one more question before we get to the end. It's and, and touching on something else you said during the conversation at the FFA 2021 is that you mentioned innovation will be part of creating a more sustainable universe, but that innovation is not strictly always the domain of large or small businesses developing new products and that it's much more academia that actually comes up with the new ideas. So in this world where there are less or no large corporates, how do you make that link between academia and field practice? Yeah, that's that's a big question that I, I can't pretend to know the answer to. <laughs> I mean, I would say that, uh, you know, I, I think there's, you know, we, we've, we've mentioned the, the role of the public sector here. So public financed research. I think there's still a lot of scope for more agroecological research to be done. Uh, and also, you know, both having the transfer of knowledge from academia to farmers, but also the other way. You know, there's a lot of farmers, there are a lot of farmers who are now trying to pilot uh, new um, new ways of farming. I'm thinking, for example, obviously, uh, obviously the kind of the agroecological farmers we know about, but also really great attempts at, uh, at forest gardening and agroforestry and so on. So I think that relationship needs to work two ways. Uh, I think my point was more that we, you know, the, the, the bias that we have in favor of the private sector 
sector in you know in our society or amongst our policymakers, for me leads us to suggest to leads us to believe that only the private sector will come up with a a technological solution to our problems. Uh, I don't think that's the case. And and in fact, you know, if if we're talking about the panel, I remember when I mentioned food waste being an issue, uh, the the gentleman from Sagenta was saying actually they're developing you know seed tomato seed that. Um, that, that, that extends the shelf life of the tomato. So that's a, tech, a potential tech solution to food waste. Having said that, you know, there are other solutions to food waste which are likely to be a lot more effective, including shorter supply chains, including growing your own. Why not? Including these CSA models that I've been discussing. So that's perhaps what I was getting at, that we shouldn't assume that we need this kind of commercial innovation and the private sector and the profit motive for that matter uh, to be able to think creatively about the kinds of solutions we're after. I want to ask you the last question, which we ask of everybody, but I will take this discussion of the profit motive off the table. And as I say, if, if we could ask you for, for one idea or one policy suggestion to really make the food system more sustainable, what would it be? I think I'm, I'm going to struggle with one, but I'll very quickly say, I think it's important for us to do what we can in our lives, you know, recognizing that a lot of us are trying to uh, take action on climate change in our lives, for example, uh, driving less or no f- flying less or whatever it might be. We need to recognize that food needs to be part of that individual action, uh, hence meat reduction, hence food waste prevention as much as we can. We then need to realize that you know there are limits to this individual action. Obviously, we're in a structure that is unsustainable. Uh, so what can we do within our budgets, within our time commitments, within you know the, all these constraints that we have in our lives to help create this next food economy that I talk of, can we get some of our food for a CSA? Can we help support? Can we join a local cooperative? You know, can, what can we do to do that? You know, to, to take the, those steps in, in this economic change that we need to see. And then the final point I think that's really important is that we really need to politicize food. You know, we really, it needs to be something that our policymakers are challenged on, you know, that they know that we care about it. I just wonder how many of us who care about food are are writing to our representatives and asking them, you know what are their views uh, on on what needs to happen in the food system? You know, are they would they put forward legislation on public procurement that is you know aligned with planetary health goals and 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 health goals? So I think there's still a lot to be done to make sure that food is understood to be a civic issue uh, and not just a consumer issue. So let's get active. You know, let's get out, take make changes, make changes in our lives, but also let's get you know get active on the street uh, and politicize food. Karina Millstone, Executive Director at Feedback Global. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today and joining uh, the FFA 2021 main conference. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. In the aftermath of the FFA 2021 month of March, we will be going to a weekly release schedule to bring you follow-up interviews with some of our great speakers. To make sure you get all updates, please subscribe on your podcast app as well as on Twitter at Forum for Ag to get content on this podcast, news, as well as all other Month of March related content. Please check out our website, www.forumforagriculture.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day.